This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. When it comes to COVID-19, are you an infection fighter, an inconsistent, or a cynical spreader? We started the week learning results of a new Angus Reid survey, which suggests that nearly half of us 47% are doing everything we can to reduce the spread of COVID-19, while just over a third, or 36%, are inconsistent in their approach. And one in five, 18%, are flouting the guidelines by expanding their social bubbles beyond 10 people, not physical distancing or wearing a face covering, and not paying added attention to hygiene, like hand washing. The survey also shows the older you are, the more likely you are to follow the guidelines and embrace your role as an infection fighter. On Monday, while filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, to discuss. I thought we had seen an uptick recently in, in acceptance of the need to be careful during these times. And also, I'm surprised to see that in some of the categories, actually uh, older adults are uh, those who are uh, seem to be ignoring some of the guidelines that we're getting from health authorities. We would hope that the younger Canadians would uh, uh, take some regard for the health of the older adults who are more uh, more inclined to have, uh, have overreactions to the uh, COVID virus. And therefore, they would be as careful as the older adults are. Right. We have the infection fighters. Uh, that would be you and me and all, yeah. and my colleagues here at uh, the Zoomerplex. And some of them are younger and some of them are older. Uh, friends and family, the infection fighters, that represents 47% of Canadians, uh, that category. And then there are those who are being referred to as the inconsistents. And they are, they make up 36% of the population. So I, I would imagine those who are inconsistent in their behavior, so sometimes they're masking uh, or physically distancing and washing their hands, but other times maybe they're feeling a bit of COVID fatigue. Is that your impression as well? It is my impression, although in addition to that, my observations have been, for instance, in restaurants, often younger people seem to come in wearing masks, but they forget. Uh, when they're leaving their tables, perhaps to uh, go to the washroom or when they're leaving uh, in- entirely. And maybe we just have to get in the habit of more when we, you know, when we leave the house, we have to check. We've got our wallet, our driver's license, and we've got our mask. And we have to do that uh, every time we can come in or out of an enclosed space. What would you say, Bill, to the cynical spreaders uh, out there? 
uh, about the danger that they are creating. And it, coming from a CARP member's point of view, a uh, new vision of aging, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are older, whose, whose immune systems are compromised. And these are the people we need to be thinking of rather than ourselves. It's really these cynical spreaders are really very selfish. Yeah, they they are. And, and I think one of the things that we all have to do and we have to ask the medical authorities to do is to be more specific around the, the use and the need for uh, masks. There's still too much uh, misinformation out there about uh, whether or not uh, masks are effective. And, and yes, uh, they're more to uh, protect other people, to protect ourselves. But remember that uh, if we're all wearing them, then we are among those other people who are uh, protected. And I don't think that's understood uh, yet that uh, it's the uh, what, you know, when you talk about herd immunity, uh, people don't really understand that this protects you as well as the rest of the herd. Another survey to talk about here, Bill, um, also Angus Reid, finds three in 10 Canadians feel the restrictions in their own provinces don't go far enough. So this is uh, perhaps juxtaposition to, to the first survey we were talking about. In many ways, in many provinces, it's the same, uh, it's the same percentages only reversed. And this is because I think those who are extremely concerned about uh, us working together to fend this virus uh, off and make sure that uh, it doesn't get any worse in our uh, provinces are very anxious that everybody should, should do, should do the same thing. It's, it's a difficult uh, balance because we also uh, find ourselves wanting to travel, wanting to visit uh, uh, families. So not surprising that uh, uh, that it's as low as 30 percent. I think we would hope it would be it would be higher uh, unless you really think that our governments are doing the best job they can. Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Toronto's become more of a cycling city during the pandemic with brand new bike lanes along the Danforth. But with these new lanes for cyclists and patios in the curb lanes as part of Cafe T.O., it doesn't leave much room for vehicular traffic. And some neighborhood residents complain the Danforth has become much more crowded in recent months. But cycling advocate Albert Cole thinks there are more benefits than negatives, as he told me in our conversation on Wednesday. Uh, I think it's beautiful. Um, my sister lives in that area, so I've got lots of uh, opportunity to go there. Uh, it's now uh, a street where even, even my nephews can think about uh, uh, cycling. Uh, it's you know, when we talk about uh, our city, we also have to realize it's a changing city. So we're going to have these conflicts uh, between uh, different uh, modes. But, of course, uh, uh, cycling has the advantages of being clean, uh, giving us a healthy uh, op- opportunity or a way to exercise. And uh, we, we fight climate change that way. So for some reason, uh, you know, the word traffic has been appropriated by motor traffic, but uh, other modes, walking, uh, cycling, transit are, of course, also very important parts of traffic. We know that uh, cars often get the most attention. Motorists get the most attention. Uh, it requires the most space, makes the most noise. So we often think it's also the way most people are traveling. But uh, in Toronto, that's no longer the reality. 
We know that um, the majority of people now, uh, more than half of people uh, commute to work and to school by walking, cycling, and transit. And that's a trend as well. Like we're seeing increasing numbers of people walking, cycling, and taking transit. So, so we're going to see these fights around the city. And it's really a question of what kind of city do we want to live in? Do we want a city where we have cafes on the roads, where we have kids and uh, seniors cycling on the road and a lot of people walking? That's the defining moment for us and the question of what kind of city do we want. So in terms of the uh, cyclist traffic, are the lanes being used in the way you'd like to see? Well, well, Jerry can comment on that, uh, but uh, we know that uh, on Bloor, for example, when the bike lane first went in in 2016, uh, there was some reticence about it, but we saw uh, cycling numbers almost double. And uh, despite that, we still heard people saying, you know, we were getting counts of up to 6,000 people a day, and yet we were still hearing people say, I never see cyclists. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem we have as cyclists, and it's, it's a very pleasant problem to have, is that we don't make a lot of noise, we don't take up a lot of room, and, um, you know, we're not noticed sometimes for that reason. Cyclists will use arterials, and they'll use arterials for the same reason that motorists do. It's because the fastest way to get to places, there are a lot of attractive uh, destinations along the way. So we, we know that if we put uh, bike lanes and you know on side roads, they won't get used as much as arterials. Uh, right now, cycling is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's enjoying a wonderful renaissance in the sense that we know it's one of the things that we can do and stay healthy in terms of the virus. So, so it is a, um, a, a great option for a lot of people right now, especially people who can't go to the gym or can't use, uh, you know, other modes of, um, of exercise. So in terms of it being a, a bit of a confined space, well, we're still giving, you know, the vast majority of space uh, to the motor car because it takes a lot of space. But uh, the design right now, and of course we learn from these things, the design right now is, is impressive in the sense of allowing for a lot of flowers in the area, for a lot of uh, cafe space, for bike lanes, for people to walk, and still uh, the majority of space for people to drive. So these are the kinds of uh, experiments that we need in the city to learn how to do these things best. So there might be some adjustments in the long term, but uh, um, having that kind of a confined, confined space also means that people are going to be slowing down when they're in their cars. And one of the nice things that we've seen over the last number of months is a lot fewer uh, road fatalities and serious injuries. My conversation on Wednesday with cycling advocate Albert Cole. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. We Canadians were cautioned this past week that the overlap of the flu season and the COVID-19 pandemic could provide a host of healthcare challenges across the medical system and beyond. The warning comes from the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Sandy Buckman, who says it's going to be a major challenge for family physicians to sort out. On Thursday, our fightback panelists, epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandon and family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, provided their perspectives when they joined me in conversation. The challenge for me as a family doctor is that there's now going to be a barrier to getting the flu shot, and that's that every single patient who calls has to answer that questionnaire, that COVID-19 questionnaire, and if they have anything, a runny nose, a sore throat, a fever, they're going to be directed first to COVID testing. 
Uh, okay. so that, that's a barrier. So someone won't come into your office first. When they call, they will be asked those questions and then directed whether they can come see you or whether they should go to a COVID-19 testing center. That's exactly right. And then what happens? We have to know that they're testing negative for COVID before they qualify. And there will be also measures done in pharmacies to make sure that patients are not going to be spreading COVID at the point of giving the vaccination at the pharmacy. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, remind us how closely related the symptoms are between COVID-19 and the seasonal flu. Well, 40% of patients with COVID-19 can be asymptomatic. But as people get older, the likelihood of becoming symptomatic actually does go up just a little bit. So the people who have symptoms, you know, we have to be cautious. Those over 60, high risk. Those with chronic conditions, potentially higher risk. So at the same time, this is the same group we want to make sure that they have protection. You know, the flu shots are not yet available, but what is available now are the pneumonia shots. So that's critical to get now. Oh, tell us more about that. So there's two pneumonia shots available, one of which is actually covered by insurance plans, and that's called Pneumovax 23. And that reduces invasive pneumococcal pneumonia by 75%. That's a huge reduction. The other shot is the Prevnar 13, and that's important to get because that cuts the likelihood of pneumococcal pneumonia in half. And those are one-offs. Once you have it, you're good for life. You don't have to worry again. So I'm encouraging all my own patients to be sure to get vaccinated against pneumonia now, and that way when the flu shots come out, they'll be good and ready to get their flu shot. Understand that vaccines take a couple of weeks to work. So up front, get your pneumonia shot. You can do that right now and get the flu shot at your first opportunity. Do not be hung up on, is this high dose or is this not high dose? It actually doesn't really matter. What matters is that you get that vaccine immunity on board early because it's risky if you have pre-existing lung disease and then later have exposure to COVID-19. We now want to bring in epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dionandin at the University of Ottawa to join the conversation. How important is the flu shot in this year of the pandemic? It's pretty important for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is just to remove complications from how we observe symptomatology in the population. So if people are becoming immune to the flu by the flu shot, they're less likely to clog the medical pathways and the clinics and uh, and confuse our epidemiology data with symptoms that might be COVID-related. So just take yourself out of the equation, get the flu shot and just be safe and don't confuse us further. What about all of the pandemic-induced precautions? Uh, they should help oh, contain the spread of the seasonal flu, right? A hundred percent. I mean, look at the Southern Hemisphere. They had one of the, uh, the best flu seasons on record because of the distancing precautions they're taking. And I fully expect us to, uh, here in Ontario to have one of the best flu years we've had in a very long time, maybe even ever. Because people will take public health seriously now. The distancing, the hand washing, the staying away from others, the mask wearing. I, I really expect a good flu year. I also expect people to take the flu vaccine more seriously now than ever before. So I expect that there's going to be lineups early on to get it, which is great. I mean, the uptake will be fantastic. And I really hope that when this pandemic is over, this pro-public health mindset uh, stays with us for a while. Any inside information as to when we can expect a vaccine or new research which would provide some hope that, that the pandemic will be gone sooner rather than later? 
I have no inside information, but my feeling is that there will be a vaccine on the market somewhere in the world by the end of the year. It might be in the hands of Canadians by next spring. And I think this pandemic will be pretty much over by the end of 2021. Now, I'm an optimist, and I always err on the side of positive thinking. So, you know, don't take my predictions to the bank. But um, given the, the positive outcomes of phase two clinical trials of about a half dozen vaccines so far, my projection is that if those are scaled up and the phase three trial data is similar, then if we can get it to enough hands by next year, we can be out of most of this mess by the end of next year. Dr. Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Residents near Young and Eglinton say they've been made out to be villains for speaking out against what they say is an increase in crime related to three new homeless shelters in their neighborhood. The Roehampton Hotel on Mount Pleasant, along with two buildings on Broadway, were quickly turned into homeless shelters by City of Toronto staff to ensure physical distancing in an effort to curb the spread of COVID-19. But the result has been less than desirable, even considering the extenuating circumstances. On Thursday, I was joined by Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer, along with City Councillor Mike Cole, who represents residents in Ward 8, Eglinton, Lawrence. Uh, This uh, authority, uh, because of uh, a COVID-19 emergency and because of city policies, that the uh, decisions of uh, where these are located are delegated to staff. Councillor Robinson and I certainly uh, were never given any uh, information about these going in or consulted on it, uh, about the details. And so then then that's when we started to get all kinds of uh, emails, calls, uh, frantic uh, uh, calls for help from uh, residents who saw, you know, needles in... uh, parks and laneways uh, and schoolyards. They saw break-ins in uh, clothing shops, restaurants, uh, uh, all up and down uh, Young Street. The fact is that when uh, this uh, kind of thing happens, the normal reaction for people is to call and say, what's going on and can we uh, please deal with it? And they call the police, they call the city. But then what happens is that uh, people that express legitimate concerns uh, are told that they're anti-homeless, anti-shelter. Well, that's not the case. It's just a very reasonable outcry from people saying, hey, listen, can I get uh, this dealt with? Uh, you know, I've just had my, you know, my house broken into, my store broken into. I need some help. So they call the police, they call the city, and then uh, they are then vilify for calling out for help. So people are yelling and screaming at the... Uh, people in the shelter, uh, and, you know, some of them may be uh, responsible for some of the criminal activity, but not all of them. And then the same with, so they get, uh, you know, attacked as being uh, no good, uh, and which isn't the case. And then the uh, the longtime residents or shopkeepers, they get yelled at. And then the shopkeepers in Eglinton have just gone through this COVID hell yeah. where they've lost uh, their life savings. And then on top of that, then this thing comes on where their businesses are being broke into and, uh, and, uh, their, uh, customers and, uh, 
staff are being uh, threatened. Yeah, and I get it. To come to work, so this is uh, sort of compounds the whole thing. Let's bring in Brad Ross, Toronto's chief communications officer. Councillor Cole's point was that it's not so much the homeless people that are causing issues; it's the drug dealers that are coming mm-hmm. into the neighborhoods that are that are causing mm-hmm. problems uh, for the people who live in the area and concerns around children's safety and all of that. Sure, totally, totally get that, and. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the drug issue is, is one, of course, that, that isn't unique to, to any specific site, uh, shelter or otherwise. Uh, unfortunately, there are, uh, you know, drug dealing that occurs across the city. Um, but what we, what we have uh, done and what we are establishing is uh, a community liaison uh, committee, for example, uh, working with the, the folks who are staying in the shelter to to remind them and of of the good neighbor policy that we have, and that if they don't adhere to it, then uh, then then they won't be able to stay at this particular shelter. Once a, a shelter is established in a community, it, it, over time, what we find uh, historically is that the the people who live there and the people in the neighborhood and the community really do become integrated and and they become neighbors and and we see a lot of great uh, goodwill and outreach that starts to occur in, in the community so this is new uh, unfortunately we're unable to do the kinds of public information that that we would have normally done uh, so we absolutely understand the um, uh, the concern that that the community has uh, around uh, not just the shelter but as you noted the the criminal activity that may occur and so working with the police and having these police patrols is also very, very important in all of this. Okay. Uh, you know, the objective, the objective of, uh, of of homelessness isn't more shelters; it's housing, uh, and, and people who have been living outside for very long periods of time are starting to to get to get housed, to find permanent housing, uh, and and part of the the objective in, in a shelter system is to to help those individuals uh, you know, get into a, a home and to be able to uh, you know, care for themselves and do all those things that, uh, right. that, that most of us take for granted. Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer and Ward 8 City Councillor Mike Cole. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Scarlett lives on Queen Street West and phoned to share her experience living near a homeless shelter. I live near Augusta Street where a shelter opened several years ago and it was a complete nightmare. Um, neighbors were being harassed, children were being scared, people were being followed into their homes, uh, there was litter everywhere, yelling and screaming all night long, and the shelter itself and all the people working there thought it was perfectly fine and encouraged the activity. And it, we were always asking about a uh, safe neighborhood. They want safe injection sites and safe um, situations for the vicious criminals, but law-abiding, tax-paying, decent citizens are somewhere down the list. John in Guelph called about wearing masks and public transit. I'm almost 70. I ride the buses every day because I still work. And the uh, we have a mandatory policy for masks on the bus, but it's never enforced, I think. If they're not wearing a mask, they should not be allowed to get on the bus. Bruce in Etobicoke phoned about best practices around face coverings and how you should still try to physical distance when wearing a mask. 
one thing I noticed that when people that are wearing masks, they seem to break that six foot, that two meter barrier. They come right up to me. And I, I think they think that because they're wearing a mask that they can do so. So is that medically or socially acceptable? To me, I don't want them to be that close to me, but they seem to do it because they're wearing that mask. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Paul in Mississauga, who phoned to express his concerns about those who are not adhering to public health guidelines. I'm a frontline worker who's out there battling the pandemic, and I went to Port Credit for dinner with my wife on the weekend. Uh, Like most patios and restaurants, there is a lineup. But I was very disappointed to find so many people in the lineup as well as walking by on the sidewalk with no mask, no physical distancing, and just like it's any other day, and we're never going to win this war with people like that. Paul, thank you for keeping us safe. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you would like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.